Um, so Scott, what are we going to be uh, doing today? Well, we're going to see if we can return to our original format. So thing, things uh, change over time. So we get thousands of listeners listening to the podcast, but we've got a small number of people that tune in live. And I'm not sure how many people are out there tuned in live right now, but when we originally started Bible Quest, it was a Q&A program. So we would have some things that we talked about, but we're also looking for questions from the audience. And uh, we want to see if, our, if whoever's out there today has a Bible question that they would like to ask, a topic, a text, a question. If you do uh, submit it, either they're on my Facebook page or Jonathan, remind them again how they can uh, do it if they go to the BibleQuest.tv. Uh, yeah, or if you're on the Zoom app, going to BibleQuest.tv, um, and then live, you can use the Q&A box or the chat window. And there's also a section on the website where you can send your questions in after the show as well. Just click on the, the 2 p.m. Uh, broadcast on Tuesdays, and it'll let you submit your question and send it to us. We can read that. So uh, we've got um, a, a topic that we're going to start with while we're waiting to see what uh, topics our audience would like us to talk about and address. Uh, and that topic is, what is it, Jonathan? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a little bit uh, recently, but really the topic is sin, uh, I guess. But looking at it from a perspective of um, the seriousness of it and kind of making an analogy in the scripture that I think scripture purposely kind of does make this analogy or a similar type of situation people found themselves in to maybe kind of illustrate what it means to be in sin. And I want to kind of show how that works um, because it's really important for people to realize that they are in sin. And that's maybe one of the most dangerous situations somebody could be in, not realizing their deep need to get out of sin because of their pitiful situation. Um, and so I want to start... For clickbait, let's go ahead and throw it up there what it is. The analogy is... Yeah, leprosy. Leprosy. Yeah. So I want to start in, uh, in the Old Testament and Leviticus. I want to read two passages to show kind of just generally what leprosy was, how it was viewed, and then go to the New Testament and make a comparison between leprosy and sin. Uh, the, the language that's used is really, really similar. So in Leviticus chapter 13... Um, this is in the middle of the, the law where God is describing different things that make his people clean or unclean. And he spent two chapters talking about like their diet, and various different things. And you get to chapter 13 and he starts to talk about different diseases. And leprosy is one of those things that shows up. So in Leviticus 13, verse 45 and 46, there's kind of a general statement about the leprous person, what their life is like. And so it says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean, he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Um, so uh, I have one other passage that I want to show something about, but from those two verses, what's what's the life of a leprous person like? Like, how, how would you guys describe it? Put it in your own words. Not good. Uh, you're you're outside, not just outside of the house. You're outside of society. You're. Uh, it, it's like the, the the rabbis sometimes used to throw rocks at lepers, you know, to to keep them away. Uh, and your job is to stay away from people and let them know how 
unclean you are. Yeah. Uh, so make this comment real quick. Um, when Jesus cleanses the 10 lepers in Luke 17, it's kind of interesting. One of them is a Samaritan and Jesus speaks of only this stranger in contrast to the others. So I would take it the others are Jews. So it's kind of interesting. Usually Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. But when you're lepers, it's, it's yeah. like, or it's just all lepers anyway. So right. you're stuck in misery out here. Yeah. Yeah. So Leviticus really hits on kind of the emotional and mental and, and social challenges of being a leper. Um, you're, you're an outcast. Uh, you have to make sure that everyone knows that you're an outcast. You have to publicly broadcast how dirty you are, how people need to stay away from you. People really hated you. They wanted you to stay far away from them. Another passage that shows something about the life of a leper is in Numbers chapter 12. Uh, Numbers 12 records a story when the Israelites are still kind of uh, on their way towards the promised land, and they get right outside the promised land. And uh, Moses's brother, Aaron, and, and Miriam, they are kind of dissatisfied with Moses being the leader, uh, and they have some complaints and different things, and they bring that to, to Moses. Uh, and the Lord is upset with how Miriam and Aaron kind of deal with that. And in Leviticus 12, in uh, verse 9, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And in verse 10, it says, When the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done so foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Aaron is pleading with Moses, please go to God on our behalf. Don't let Miriam have this terrible disease. Um, and how he describes the disease that Miriam has, I think is really interesting. He says, please don't let her as be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away. That describes the physical trauma of being a leper. Um, it, it was just a terrible disease. Your, your flesh is literally kind of decaying as you're alive, uh, falling off. Sometimes, if I understand correctly, people would, you know, lose fingers, lose toes. Um, it, it was just really painful and just a horrible life. And how Aaron kind of viewed it is Miriam is as good as dead um, now. Um, like, you know, she'd be better off dead is kind of the situation that she was in. So being a leper was both challenging socially mentally, emotionally, physically. It was just a, a terrible situation to be in. I think that's really clear to see from passages about it. And there are other stories in the Old Testament to go to to see how hard it was to be a leper. So I want to just stop right there because I want to go to the New Testament and look at some comparisons between leprosy and sin and some of the language that's used. But we've had some more people kind of come on live. So Scott, you want to, again, just say really quickly. Yeah. Um, We're looking for your questions today. Uh, when we started Bible Quest, it was, uh, we had more Q&A going on, and today we're trying to see if we can get back to that. Most of our audience by far uh, is people who listen to the podcast later, but if you happen to be out there listening live uh, and you got a question, we would love to hear from you. So just uh, send it in, and we, we'd like to address it, turn it over to the panel to respond today. Yeah, and also if you are downloading this podcast later on and listening uh, and you have a question you'd like us to discuss specifically, you can visit our website, BibleQuest.tv, and let us know those questions. We'll be happy to answer those. You don't even have to be listening live. We can still answer your questions. Yeah. So right now we're just discussing. About, we're talking about leprosy, and Jonathan's about to show some similarities from the New Testament to the condition described of leprosy in the Old Testament, 
Uh, and I'm going to throw out a question here or comment in a few minutes, but first I want to see if Dan has anything to add before we go to that New Testament passage, Jonathan, is going to take us to. Well, just one of the first things that struck me when you were reading from Leviticus chapter 13 was uh, it had very practical, tangible laws. Do this, don't do this. And, and But by the time you get done with that bit of the reading, it's it even if it's still talking about those practical um, behaviors, it, I think you mentioned the idea, um, uh, I can't even remember the words that you were using, but brought out the, the, the emotional aspect to it, not just the physical, but the emotional aspect to it. Um, when it's talking about leprosy, it moves from details about personal behavior and moves very quickly into the reality of who and what we are. And I think that that's really that's really an important uh, idea here. Is that's that's what all the Bible passages seem to do. It's it's ugly and loud when talking about leprosy, but it's pointing out this is what you are. You are unclean. You will live alone. You're going to be outside the camp. That's not a punishment. That's just the situation. Um, if you've lost a hand, then you're going to be one-handed for the rest of your life. You're not punished with it. You, that, that's just what you are. And it's striking um, at how how uh, serious uh, serious this is, which is really what you were pointing out, Jonathan. That that um, that the point is then that sin, which is described in a similar way, is so serious. Yeah, and so that brings us to Ephesians chapter two in the New Testament. I think it's really really striking that some of the language that's used to describe leprosy and the life of a leper is almost identical to describing the situation that people find themselves in when they're living in sin. Um, so some of the descriptive terms were, you know, you're as good as dead, um, you're separated, you're an outcast, um, you're unclean, impure, all those different kinds of things describe a leper. When you get to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul is describing the state of people prior to them coming to Christ. And he says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there's kind of the first common descriptor. Good as dead, you were dead. <laughs> you're, you're a walking dead man kind of thing. Uh, and then he says in verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So just the descriptor of that is, you're an outcast, you're, you're in this situation where you have wrath kind of coming towards you. Uh, it's it's a, a painful situation um, and, and really kind of in a pitiful place. Um, and you're kind of with it, you know, with, with everybody in that boat. I wanna skip down past verse four and go to verse 12 because he uses some more descriptive terms to describe that situation. Um, he says, remember, this is Ephesians 2, verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Um, so again, you've got similar types of things. You're separated, you're alienated, and Paul is talking specifically about the Gentiles before they were brought into the promise of Christ, but I think that can still apply to just sin in general. Um, if, you're, if you're separated, you're separated from Christ, you're separated from the, the true Israel of God, uh, you have no hope, you're without God, your, your life is pretty much worthless and pointless, all you have to look forward to is pain and suffering and death. And you're um, unclean and you're outside the camp. Yeah, yeah, unclean and you're outside the camp. And if, if you realize that, I mean, you think about the life of a leper, 
one story that I didn't show in, in the Old Testament about lepers is uh, in, uh, I think it's First Kings, I don't remember the exact chapter, maybe chapter 11 or 12 around there, where you've got the lepers that are sitting outside of the city whenever the city of Jerusalem is being besieged by Syria. And uh, they're sitting like outside at the gate and you've got the army on the outside that's attacking your city. And you've got all the people on the inside that don't want you on the inside. Um, and they pretty much just kind of say, well, if we sit here, we're dead. And if we go inside, we're dead. And if we go outside, we're dead. But we might as well try to do something <laughs> to save ourselves. And they end up going outside. But that's kind of the situation that they were in. Um, we're, we're, no matter what we do, we're dead. There's got to be at least something that we can try to do. And the reality of being in the situation Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two is there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. Um, you're, you're dead. And there's no hope if it's just you and your answer. But the beautiful thing that happens in Ephesians chapter two is uh, Paul shows what God has done to get us out of that situation. You're, you're in a hopeless, pitiful, dead situation. But in Ephesians two and verse four, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And after verse 12, after he describes the, the alienation and the separation and being without God and without hope, it says in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the, uh, the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Um, and then for, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So it's just a beautiful picture of what Paul describes like the leper, sinners find themselves in a situation of pain and death and sorrow and separation and alienation and no hope, but God offers cleansing through his son. And why that's so important for us to realize is because Paul will describe in some of his other letters and in the New Testament the, the, the description of salvation and how God offers that with his grace. That's something we need to respond to. But we need to first realize the seriousness of our situations before we realize the greatness of the grace of God. Um, the good news is not as good unless you know the bad news first. And the bad news is you're a walking dead person in your sin. Sin is serious. Sin separates us from God. It's, it's dangerous. It's disgusting. It's dirty. It ruins your life. And, and you're trapped in it. And there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of it but God can get you out of it. Um, and that's, that's the beautiful thing um, with there. So I think that's an important and helpful connection for us to make in our lives and, and to help people to see if somebody doesn't know they're drowning, they're not going to ask for help. Um, but people are drowning and dying in their sins and God offers help freely to people that ask for it, reach out and take the help. Go ahead, Scott. So I want to throw out a question. I'm going to do it in two forms. 
uh, one will be one side of it and, and one will be the other. The lepers knew they were lepers. I mean, they, they know they're outside of the camp. They know nobody wants to be around. So first half of the question is this, what if everybody on earth was a leper? Second half of the question, looking at it in a different way, what if there were a lot of human beings who didn't sweat, didn't age, didn't get disease and didn't die? And you and I are the group, uh, we sweat, we age, we get sick, we die. And what if we were excluded from the other part? So like you mentioned, one of the aspects here is the emotional part. And I think you, I want you guys to explore this, some of the difference uh, on how the lepers would have felt and how would we feel in, in the situations that we just described. Let's start with if everybody on earth has leprosy, it's just yeah. a natural fact. Yeah, in the, in the first scenario, if everybody was a leper, one of the results would probably be uh, nobody would realize how bad it is. <laughs> um, right. You know, this is just normal. This is, this is where everybody is at. Um, Only human. Yeah. Like. Yeah. So, so it kind of takes away um, a little bit of the awareness of how pitiful your life is. Yep. If everyone has a pitiful life, you don't really know what a good life is. And what's the point of that spiritually? Yeah, spiritually, that happens all the time. Um, you look around in the world, you see everybody living in sin. Um, you don't realize, yeah, you don't realize how much of a wreck sin makes of your life if everybody's life is a wreck. And, and what's interesting is everybody knows that they're sick somehow. They might not know that, um, you know, if we're going with the leprosy metaphor, um, they might not recognize that this wound on this hand is bad. Everyone has a wound on their hand, so that must be normal. But they're still going to know that something's wrong, mm -hmm. and and that's one of the that's one of the things is that maybe we think that bad skin is an eternal problem, but something's wrong beneath the bad skin is, is what we all end up thinking, or maybe we try to work on. Um, uh, you know, covering up our bad skin, everyone starts wearing gloves, but we all know something is wrong beneath the bad, there's something beyond that, and, and um, that's what's neat, God helps us, God helps us put into words or law what that problem actually is, but we're all going to know it, we're all going to know that there is a problem, God just helps us to define it and clarify it. Yeah, and, um, and I want to just reiterate really quickly again uh, to those listening to us live. Um, we want to talk about your questions. So if you have questions about what we're discussing right now or any other questions or comments that you'd like us to discuss, we're happy to pivot and answer your questions now on our live show. Um, but going off of what Dan said as well, thinking about that, um, that reminds me a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that's really what Ecclesiastes does. It shows that, you know, you might not be able to put your finger on it. But something about this life is just not good. Um, something about this life is just hard. It's there's vanity everywhere. There's injustice everywhere. And I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's this discontentment that I have in this life. Um, and Solomon, through Ecclesiastes, explores that feeling, and he he comes down to it and says, "Well, the fact of the matter is, everything in this life is like that. 
The only thing in this life that's not like that are the eternal things above. <laughs> Remembering your creator and, and seeking him, fearing him, keeping his commandments. Those are the, the substantial lasting things. But the rest of the things in this life will just let you down. Um, some of them are sinful. Some of them aren't sinful. <laughs> They're just empty. Um, and uh, coming to realize that is really helpful. But it's hard to realize that sometimes and really put your finger on what the thing is wrong in this in this life when everybody is having that same problem um and that kind of gets to scott's point go ahead scott yeah and when dan said a while ago he said like if everybody had leprosy maybe we would wear gloves you know so our our wounds wouldn't show but you know we know if it's underneath there uh and in a lot of ways that's what i think humans tend to do we we cover things up uh so adam and eve sin and the first thing they do is hide um and there's people who don't realize the enormity of their sin. There's people who don't realize the seriousness of their sin. But often there's that nagging guilt, something's not right, something's not good, but it doesn't mean that they don't put on a good face. You know, and so like the word hypocrite comes from Greek theater where they would have a mask on. So you put on the mask and we go out and try to portray or oh wow social media is really like this here's my real life i'm not going to put that on social media mm -hmm. here's my imagined and pretend life and the life i want everybody to think i have and that's what's going to go on social media yeah yeah, yeah and 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 we live in a in a time or in a culture now that um really wants to avoid pain of any kind at all costs um whether that's guilt or physical pain or you know whatever like we want to get rid of it as quickly as possible um and i, I just want to think about that for just a couple of, of, of minutes i think we might have talked about this recently on the show but it's i think worth restating saying um if if life didn't have any pain whatsoever at all it would be a much worse life mm -hmm. for for a number of reasons one, um, like one of the points that we've already made, if pain is absent, you don't know what really good things feel like. There's nothing to compare it to. Um, you know, if, if all you ever feel is good, you don't really know what, what good is. You can't really define um, what good is. So that kind of takes away a little bit of the value, similar to kind of like the gospel, the message of salvation. If you don't know the bad news, the good news is not as powerful. Um, but also not feeling pain is really dangerous um on a physical level it's really dangerous I've, I've read before and i don't know the exact terms uh off the top of my head but i've read that there are people with conditions where they don't have uh like you know nervous uh you know, their nervous system is not working properly and they can't feel certain kinds of pain in certain areas of their of their bodies i know like neuropathy is one example of that like in your feet you lose feeling in your feet and things like that as a result of maybe diabetes or things that can be really dangerous because uh, if you can't feel anything in your feet and you start, uh, you know, stepping on something really, really hot and your skin is burning and you can't feel that, um, you're going to cause some really permanent lasting damage that you could avoid if you felt that pain immediately. Uh, or, you know, you put your hand on the stove or, or whatever it is, or your appendix bursts and it hurts. Well, it's good that that hurts. It tells you something's wrong. You need to go to the doctor and get, get some treatment that you need. And if we don't feel pain physically, it can be dangerous. It's the same thing, not feeling pain spiritually. Um, Paul describes it in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 as people who have their consciences seared 
that's how maybe a lot of people have gotten to uh, in life. They've been living as leprous people or people living in sin for so long that that's just normal now. And they don't realize how dangerous of a situation that they're in. Um, and uh, so I think I've said that recently, but I think that's important to, to know. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I saw, and then we're going to get to a question that just came in. Really appreciate the question. Um, I'll make this comment real quick, and then we'll get straight to that. Years ago, I was watching PBS. And it was a documentary, and they were interviewing a man with leprosy. And it killed the nerve endings in his uh, flesh, and so he couldn't feel things. And so he, he had a cigarette in his hand. He said, I have to look down every once in a while and see how far the cigarette is burned because I won't feel it and my skin will be burning and I don't know. So I have to keep watching. And that's an illustration of what Jonathan just said. Pain is a signal and guilt is a signal as well. Mm -hmm. uh, don't feel guilty for what other people did to you. Don't keep beating yourself up about what you repented of and the blood of Christ is washed away. But the, the, the pain is there to let us know this is not good, do something else. Mm -hmm. All right, here's our question. Why, when Paul recounts his conversion in Acts 26, does he not mention Ananias? This is a good question. And I want us to look at this a little bit more broadly. Uh, we're gonna mention a few things that are missing or not missing in some of the text. So Saul's conversion, the first time we read it is where? Acts chapter nine. Acts nine. And that's Luke just giving the history, and here's the point where Saul becomes Christian. Then he goes through Saul's life, first three missionary journeys, then he gets to Jerusalem, and he gets grabbed and tied up, mobs wanting to kill him, and he says, let me speak to him, and he tells the story again in Acts 22. Later, he's in a legal proceeding, and he tells it again in Acts 26, and when he writes to the Galatians, he describes it in Galatians chapter one. And it's really quite interesting what details get omitted and what details get noted in each of those. So we're gonna talk about Ananias not being in 26, but let's first see a few of the other things. So let's start with Acts chapter nine. We don't have time to read all of these. So I'm just gonna ask the panel to mention some things that aren't in Acts chapter nine, all right? So, so I'll just recall for uh, everybody some things that are here. That Saul asked for the letters to go to Damascus. Uh, he sees the light. Mm -hmm. uh, the men uh, around him uh, stood speechless. They hear the voice, they see no one. He gets up, he's blind, goes to Damascus, Ananias is there. Ananias comes, uh, and he he's seen the vision about Ananias. The Lord tells Ananias, "You go to him," and then he comes and he lays hands on him. He receives his sight. He's baptized into Christ, and then he start he eats and drinks. Then he starts preaching. What are some things not in Acts chapter nine that we know? The, the other three, the complete conversation uh, between. Ananias and, and Saul at that time. Uh, Acts 22 records a little bit more of the dialogue of what they say yeah. with each other. Yeah, yeah. Like the, what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. That's in Acts yeah. 2. 
but not here in nine. What else is not in nine? Uh, also, it doesn't record in Acts 9 uh, after his conversion and before he goes to Jerusalem what he did. Um, but Galatians talks about that. He, he spent uh, uh, some time in Arabia, and it doesn't mention Arabia at all, actually yeah. anywhere in the book of Acts. Acts 9 says after many days he went to Jerusalem, and Barnabas helped him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, uh, yeah, Barnabas helps him. Um, oh, and also, he, he, it does tell about that he went over the wall in a basket. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's not going to be in 22. That's not going to be in 26. Yeah. That's not going to be in Galatians 1. It is going to be one other place. Does anybody remember where else it mentions the basket? I think it meant, it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12. Yeah, in a list of persecutions. Mm -hmm. Persecution is one of the themes of Acts. Mm -hmm. So Luke puts in there having to go over the wall in the basket because they're trying to kill him. 2 Corinthians is a list of persecutions. Mm -hmm. And he mentions, yeah, I had to go over the wall in a basket. Galatians, mm -hmm. that's not the subject. Mm -hmm. And Acts 22 and 26. So you put in the details that are pertinent for the time. All right, anything else that's not in chapter nine that you notice? Nothing that I can think. I hadn't read to figure out what the differences are. So I, off the top of my head, I don't have any that are jumping in. All right, now let's go over to 22. Um, there's a couple of things, a couple of other things. One, later in 26, he's going to mention that Jesus spoke to him in Hebrew. That's not going to be mentioned in Acts 9. Well, let's come to Acts 22. And what are some things missing? For, well, first off, somebody just scan over and mention real quickly the details that are in 22. Well, it mentions um, who he is and where he's from and the, uh, to open up the, uh, the sermon. And it talks about how he was heading to, uh, to Damascus to do the work. Um, it doesn't look like he mentions the letters, but it's clear what he's on his way for. And we get the message that Jesus uh, speaks with him uh, the reaction of those who are around him and the instructions about what um, Saul needs to do, how he was led to that town and how Ananias came. And, and as Jonathan mentioned earlier, there's a, a, a longer conversation uh, or dialogue between Ananias and, and, and Saul here. All right. And it doesn't, it doesn't talk about, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it doesn't talk about um, him being able to see again afterwards. It doesn't even mention his baptism um, other than you need to do it. And, and then it doesn't tell the story of, uh, of the baptism. It just moves forward with the work that he had to do. And in Acts 9, it moves forward with he's preaching in the synagogues mm -hmm. at Damascus. Mm -hmm. Here, it moves forward, verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell in a trance. I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly. They won't accept your testimony. And he says, Lord, they themselves know how in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those that believed. When the blood of Stephen was shed, I, I was there. And then he says, but the Lord told him, go, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Gentiles. That's not mentioned back in Acts 9. Acts 9 has to do with the preaching to Jews up there. Why is it pertinent to bring up this thing about this? Oh, and by the way, it did not go over very well at all. <laughs> as soon as he says that, up to this word, 
they listen to it. But then they raise their voices and say, away from this, this phone's not fit to live. Why is this pertinent for the Acts 22 audience? They're all Jews that are angry at Saul. And so he's trying to tell them why he did what he did. You know, the Lord and, told me to go to the Gentiles. And he didn't bring the Ephesian into yeah. the temple, but he was in the city with some Gentiles. And somebody thought he took one into the temple. And there's just been a lot of opposition because Paul has been with Gentiles. It's created a lot of confusion. And so here he's bringing up, yeah, I am supposed to go to the Gentiles. So that makes it, you know, in, in one account, here's the thing that needs to be pressed. In another account, here's another one. Mm -hmm. Now let's go to Acts 26, which is what uh, our, our questioner is asked about. Who's he talking to in Acts 26? Hmm. Talking to uh, King Agrippa and uh, Governor Felix. Yeah. And so um, this is at the end of the two years in prison. I'm sorry, it was actually Festus, not Felix. I always get the mixed up. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to do. Um, and this is uh, after he's appealed to Caesar. I believe he's already appealed to Caesar. Mm -hmm. uh, but the king, the king wants to hear. And so let's just read a bit here. Uh, he says before the king, he says, verse two, I consider myself fortunate. It is uh, before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth up, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest part, Party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here in trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship uh, night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is the issue Paul wants to focus on. Now, they'd accused him of taking a Gentile into the temple. But the accusation came because everybody's upset with Paul. And one of the reasons they're upset with Paul is because he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And the essence of proving that Jesus is the Messiah was the constant preaching throughout the book of Acts that God raised him from the dead. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I myself was convinced. So remember, this is Paul talking to the king. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus from Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, oftentimes in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority, the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, and one of you pick up with the reading here in verse 13 and just read through the end of this section. As a midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and all of those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And Which I said, not in chapter nine. Right. All right keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and uh, to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa. Let's stop there. He's describing not, he's describing what the Lord told him. He's on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said, rise up on your feet. This is what you're going to do. Now, we know from Acts 9 and Acts 22 that he goes to Damascus. He meets Ananias. Ananias baptizes him, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is skipped here. Not just Ananias. His baptism is skipped. His, his interactions in Damascus is skipped. Mm-hmm. It just jumps to the more general. Pick up with verse 19. Well, it's it going to sum up here just in a phrase and then farther. He's going to mention Damascus. Pick up with verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And while he's saying this, Festus said with a loud voice, that's the governor. So the king that is there and also the governor and the governor interrupts and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. What does Paul say? Not out of my mind, um, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he appeals to the king who like he said at the beginning of his speech, I know that you're familiar with all of these things, with all of our customs. And so he says uh, in verse 26, the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for he, uh, this has not been done in a corner. And then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe them. So kind of calls him to the carpet. Yeah. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul said, whether short or long, I would that to God, not only you, but all who hear me this day might be like I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were seating with him. And they said, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He could have been set free if he had appealed to Caesar. So it's a really interesting picture here, especially with the king over here and Festus over there. Paul's speaking to the king, speaking to the king. He says, I'm standing for something the prophets taught. And, and, and Paul is preaching Jesus risen from the dead. And while he's talking, going over this short history, the Roman governor, who is not the main guy here, the king's the man, the Roman governor says, you know, Paul, you're mad. And Paul says, no, I'm not. And the king, see, turns his attention back. The king is familiar with some of these things. And I know that you believe the prophet. And he, you know, you're going to try to make me a Christian this quick. And, and Paul just says, I wish everybody here was. 
except for these chains. Uh, so why are some reasons maybe why he wouldn't have gone into all of the details that he went into in that Luke went into in nine or that Paul went into in 22? Describing his interaction with Ananias is not really pertinent to the prophecies and fulfilling yeah. some of the promises of God. And that, that's kind of his main kind of talking point in this defense. Agrippa, I know that you're aware of all the things God prophesied would happen. Let me show you how those are coming true in Christ. And Ananias didn't really play a role in the prophecy fulfillment. All right. Very good. What else? Well, when you when we first learn the story of Paul's conversion, um, Jesus shows up in the story, and he's a huge actor. But the story is Paul's story in Acts chapter nine. So it's about all the people that interacted and helped Paul's conversion. Yeah. Yep. When he repeats it in chapter twenty-two, it very much is about him and what Jesus wanted him to do. Yes. And so Jesus told me these things, or in chapter nine, Jesus set up Ananias and himself to talk to Paul. But in chapter 26, it's not about Paul. It's only about Jesus. And um, the power isn't that Paul was converted. The power is that Jesus um, is the one, it, you know, Paul just happens to be there. Um, it's about Jesus from the Old Testament, the present and into the future. And is the fulfillment of the prophets that he knows, he says, the king believes in. Yeah. And, and also another thing, perhaps, is, is timing. Uh, when you get an audience with somebody really, really, really important, I don't know if you've ever had a, an opportunity to make an appointment with a very important person, do you, do you have time to talk about and say everything that you No, you don't. In fact, you notice at this point, and then the king rose and left. He, he's got a limited amount of time, so he doesn't need to get into details. He said, and by the way, I went down, they let me over the wall in a basket, and, and then I went to Jerusalem and, and Barnabas. Those things are irrelevant for his audience here. He's talking to the king and wanting to get to the king because he's convinced the king, the king does know about the prophets and has a belief in the prophets, and he's wanting to make points there in pointing them to Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's really nice for us. We get Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, and, and, and Galatians 1. In Galatians 1, it's all about the timing because Paul's been accused of going down to Jerusalem to get trained. Yeah. So in Acts, Galatians 1, he's like, now listen, when the Lord appeared to me, and he doesn't go into any of the details, because they've heard that story, doesn't he? need to repeat that. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I went away to Arabia. Then I came back to Damascus, and it was three years before I went to Jerusalem. And when I did, I, it was like 15 days, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't listen. So he's, he's emphasizing those points. So depending on the audience, you're singling out which points you want to make. Uh, and then we have the whole thing. And so we can put Acts 9, 22, 26, and Galatians 1 together. I want to correct one thing I said. Kicking against the goads, I said it's not in chapter 9. The King James has it in there because the Latin Vulgate has it there, but no Greek manuscript has it there. It's just one of those where somebody incorporated from one text over to the other. Uh, but in the Greek, it's not there. That's a good question.
Well, um, so that's all the time that we have. It's uh, 2.45. So uh, thank you for that question. Um, and thank you guys for discussing through that. Again, to our audience, uh, if you have other questions you'd like us to discuss, uh, anything you'd like us to elaborate on that we talked about today, uh, or any other questions that you have from a text or something that's happening right now that you'd like us to discuss from a biblical perspective or, or anything you'd like us to talk about, uh, you can visit our website, biblequest.tv and click on the uh, Tuesday 2 p.m. show, and that'll let you send your questions to us, and we'll be watching for those. I'm happy to talk about those in our future shows. Um, you guys have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I want to give a 30-second wrap-up to tie two things together. Naaman was a leper, and he was willing to try to buy God's power. He brought, it's actually, we figured it up last year, it was over $4 million worth of gold and silver that he brought. But he, could, he, but he couldn't buy. God's not going to let him work for it or pay for it. He offers grace, but he had to humble himself. He said, go dip in the river Jordan. Yeah. And when he did, his leprosy was gone. Yeah. And Paul, by his works, he can't make his sin go away. He needs the grace of God. And Anna and I said, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Right. Wash away your sins. And Naaman came up, cleansed of his leprosy. Paul came up, cleansed of his sin. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. And that's all we have for this week. So we'll plan on seeing everyone next time. Lord willing.